It's good to see you tonight to worship the Lord. And why don't we turn in our Bibles once again this evening back to the book of the Song of Solomon as we continue our journey through the Old Testament together. Last week we began the Song of Solomon together. We went down as far as chapter 2, verse 7. So this evening we'll pick back up in our study in the Song of Solomon. And good just for sake of reference to remind ourselves or to acquaint you if you weren't here with us last time. The Song of Solomon, of course, the last of the poetic books in the Old Testament and really is the Holy Spirit of God's record to us of the romantic love that uh, transpired between King Solomon himself and this uh, Shulamite lady from the area of Lebanon. It seems to come to us uh, probably very early in Solomon's days. I believe this was Solomon's first love, his first wife, his first true love. Of course, ultimately, we know that Solomon did not have the best track record long term uh, as it came to these kind of things. But it clearly seems that this is just a very beautiful, pure uh, recollection from the Spirit of God telling us what transpired between King Solomon as a young man and this Shulamite woman as they discovered one another and romantic chemistry developed between them. And we see them uh, experiencing the beauty and the wonder of something that God has created and given to us as a pathway towards God's gift of marriage, which is designed by God and intended by God. And again, we see really in chapters 1, 2, and we'll see almost about halfway through chapter 3, what really describes it seems to be kind of the courtship, if we could refer it to it that way, between Solomon and this Shulamite woman. And then as we get to the middle of chapter 3, we then see the marriage relationship and the consummation of the marriage. And, and really from that point forward, uh, we begin to see the beauty and the intensity and really the, the, the passion uh, of their romantic love, even in the sexual expression of what God gave to them as a husband and a wife. And again, let me just say in advance, as we will most likely get into some of that section this evening, uh, you know, I don't think that, I don't know, it's possible per se to get extra credit for coming to church, uh, but when you know that as a church we study through the Word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter through every book of the Bible, it does kind of give you the freedom once in a while to read ahead and say, I think I'm feeling sick that evening. That might be difficult to sit and listen to, or, or I think I'll listen to the podcast, and maybe I won't be as red-faced when Pastor Tony's reading some of those verses uh, that, that I get the privilege to read through. So as difficult in some sections as you may find it to hear the reading of the Word of God, uh, recognize I have to study it, and then I have to stand here and actually communicate uh, what's there in the Word of God. But again, let me say in connection to that, I think it's very, very important to recognize uh, that when God instituted marriage and sexual expression and sexual desire being hardwired into us uh, as men and women, keep in mind all of that happened in Genesis chapter 2, which precedes Genesis chapter 3, which was where sin entered into humanity and polluted things and defiled things. And, and I think it's very important to recognize that romantic desire between a man and a woman, sexual desire, sexual expression, God even commanding that, giving that as a gift to the husband and the wife, 
as, as a bonding function in the marriage relationship, and that is something that does separate the marriage relationship from every other human relationship is the sexual expression. Think about it. All other close relationships that we have in humanity, parent-child, very close relationships, brothers-sisters. I mean, we enjoy all types of other close, intimate relationships, but the one thing that distinguishes the marriage relationship from all other relationships is sexual expression that God has given as a gift and a purposeful intention for the husband and the wife. 1 Corinthians 7 describes it in very clear terms in the first five chapters there, that it is something that is supposed to be a routine part of the marriage relationship. And in the same way, singled people are not supposed to live like married people. Married people are not supposed to live like single people. They're supposed to live like married people by God's intention and God's design. And I think it is very critical to understand God has instituted, designed all these things. The problem is, is the world has polluted and perverted it so much that sometimes in this hyper-spiritual mindset as Christians, we act like it's taboo to talk about such stuff, or it's dirty or filthy or negative. Far be it from that. God designed it, God intended it, and God has no problem talking about it in his word. If you remember, if you're with us in our study in the book of Proverbs, uh, God's pretty explicit there even in the book of Proverbs. Let me just, if I could uh, acquaint your, your memory in regards to what God says in Proverbs about intimacy between a man and a woman, particularly a husband and a wife, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, let them be only yours. And then he says this, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured, intoxicated with her love. God says that to married people. Again, and this is holy, righteous God knowing something is pure, it's blessed, it's something intended for a married couple. And I say that as a preface because I think, as I said last time, one of the things that, I don't want to say saddens me, but concerns me that some people have such an issue with believing that God would speak about something he created, he designed, and he intended for a healthy marriage, that they take the Song of Solomon and all they do is strictly look at it from an, from an allegorical standpoint alone. And they try and spiritualize every single thing in it and act like it is just this beautiful love poem, but it really doesn't mean anything that it says. It's all just types and spiritual pictures, and they try and read into every little image something spiritual. Now listen, I believe the word of God gives to us both. The Bible tells us, low in the volume of the book, it's written of me, and Jesus said in the law, the prophet, the Psalms, these things speak concerning me. So we should always, in every book of the Bible, every book of the Old Testament, and we try and do that. We should look for Christ in every book of the Old Testament, and we should see illusions and pictures and foreshadowings of Jesus and his life and work and ministry all throughout the word of God, and certainly in the Song of Solomon we do as well. But I believe in its most literal, foremost sense and context, it's describing the love relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, and then in a secondary sense, of course, and we've sought to point out a little last time and we will again this evening, we do see pictures of God's love towards us as a groom and us like a bride. And of course, in the New Testament, we know Jesus speaks of being the groom in the church 
as his bride and as the bride of Christ. And so we'll take notice of those things as well. But as we come again here, chapter 2, verse 8, we're, we're in the midst of the courtship still between Solomon and the Shulamite. And it tells us there, verse 8, this is the voice of the Shulamite, the, the lady in the relationship speaking. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Now, that's how you can tell a guy's in love right there. When a man comes skipping on the hills, you know, just setting aside his dignity. Remember, David got mocked by his wife, if you remember, Michael, when he was dancing before the Lord and shocked Oh my goodness, I can't believe the king of Israel. You're out there dancing around in your linen tunic. And, and ultimately he said, look, you think that's, I'm going to get more undignified than this. And I'm dancing for the Lord. And he was excited. And again, here we see now, you can tell love has struck this man's heart because here he now comes. He's coming to pay a visit. We're going to see it's after the winter season where they hadn't seen each other for a little while. They were kind of detached, it seems, from as much visitation. Again, Solomon, remember, is in the palace. She's a country gal from the area of Lebanon. Uh, this is kind of like a, a, a rags-to-riches story. He falls in love with this Lebanese uh, gal who's out in, and kind of working in the vineyards and, and the field uh, of her family. And, and Solomon went out looking around, examining the fields that his workers were taking care of in his kingdom. And these two caught eyes and ended up falling in love. But it seems he's now coming back to come for a visit. He's skipping on the hills. She sees him. She says, my beloved, verse 9, is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. And so what this picture is here is he's, he's coming back for a visit, and it's kind of, you know, it's sort of, we might call this like a surprise visit. This isn't like a, don't get a weird idea of here, he's like a peeping Tom or something looking through the lattice. That's not what's being described is she sees him coming over the hills, skipping. Nobody skips like my Solomon. And here's Solomon now skipping and, you know, coming towards her. And he's making a surprise visit. She hasn't seen him, it seems. For a season of time, her heart is longing for him. She's missing him. And he comes and he's, he's looking through the lattice and, 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 and about to surprise her. Verse 10, she says, My beloved spoke and said to me, now she hears his voice calling out, from outside of the lattice and the gated area, rise up, my love, he says, my fair one, my beautiful one. Again, that's the term fair, beautiful, my beautiful one. And come away. Again, he wants to draw her away to go and spend time with him. He wants to have some time alone, a little courtship, a little dating time. Let's, let's go out together. He says, verse 11, for lo, the winter is past and the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear, verse 12, on the earth. The time of singing has come. Again, he's ready to serenade her. He's, he's a man in love now. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. The vines with the tender grapes are giving a good smell. Again, rise up, my love, my fair one and come away. So again, you can tell from the language, verse 11, 12, and part of verse 13, he's describing, as I said, that there's been a change of season. Typically during the winter time and when there were the rains, 
people did not travel as much in that day. Again, keep in mind, they didn't have nice paved roads like we do. So when it was cold weather and rainy season, the ground would get muddy and mucky, and it just was more difficult to move about. And typically, wars would cease at those time frames. Spring, then wars would resume at times. Battles would begin to start up again. Same thing with travel. So they've been detached for a little bit. They're like two lovers, young lovers. Their hearts are longing for one another. They've got to know each other a little bit. They're in kind of the courtship process here. But now they haven't seen each other for a while. And he's super excited. He says, hey, the, the, the flowers are appearing. It's springtime, right? It's, his heart's Twitter-pated like Bambi. Just he's spring love is in the air, and the flowers are blossoming. And he's so excited. He shows back, and he says, hey, look. The flowers are blooming, and he says, the voice of the turtle dove, you can hear it. The animals are coming out again, and the fig tree, it's putting forth its figs and the tender grapes. And he says, there's beautiful smell. Says, come on, come away with me. Let's go walk through the woods. Let's go enjoy the sights and spend time together. Rise up, he says, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. And again, very beautiful to see, as I indicated last time, do you notice who is pursuing who? You notice that he is pursuing her. You notice that he is the one romancing her. He's the one skipping and speaking in poetic terms and saying these sweet nothings and trying to you know, invite her out to spend time with him and so forth. And he's pursuing her and she's responding to his advances and to his very romantic you know, pursuit of her in this capacity. Now, when we look at these verses here, verse 10 through 13, again, if you don't see already, what a beautiful picture we see there really of our Lord Jesus as our groom. Does not Jesus in the same way as here Solomon with the Shulamite woman, does not Jesus invite us to spend time with him? Do we not hear the voice of our Lord? And sometimes maybe even after a hard and cold and difficult winter season and, and maybe we've been through a hard time, and Jesus at times is the one, again, who, who's calling us at times to come away. At times he'll say to us, listen, come away. Come away from that. You, you, you take a break from this. Detach from that. Come spend time with me. Come just be alone with me. Get away from this. Get away from your laptop. Get away from your computer. Get away from doing that. Just, just come aside for a time. Come away with me. Be alone with me. Let's just you and I spend time alone together. And how Jesus initiates, and again, he's always the one pursuing in the love relationship, and sometimes we hear our groom's voice saying to us, come away, and it's good to respond if indeed he's asking us to do that from time to time. Verse 14, he goes on to say, O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You notice, gentlemen, this man knows how to use words. Let the word of God give you an insight and being now a little bit older man who's married almost 30 years, has grandchildren, tell you women typically are way more aroused by what they hear than by what they see. Tends to be the opposite for guys. Men are aroused and stimulated visually. Many times women are won over, their hearts are softened by what things they hear. 
by how men communicate to them and speak to them and, and address areas of their own insecurities by praising them and complimenting them and speaking kind things into their lives. And here, Solomon understands, hey, uh, I know one of the ways to, to a woman's heart is to speak in a sweet manner to her. And he's saying, look, I want to see your face. I just want to hear your voice. Your voice is so sweet. And your face is so beautiful. It's just so, I just look so forward to being able to look into your eyes again. And he's just, again, kind of romantically speaking about how he wants to be with her and that he enjoys her presence. That's the idea. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. It's another way of saying, I just, I love to be with you. I love to be able to look into your eyes and hear your voice and be alone with you. And again, as I look at verse 14, is not Jesus at times, if you would, Blessed by the same thing that Solomon says he delights in and enjoys in with the Shulamite woman. Certainly, we can hear the voice of Jesus saying to us there, let me see your face. I want to hear your voice. I want to hear you talk to me. And Jesus would say, I so enjoy hearing your voice, to hear your voice talking to me in prayer is so sweet. It blesses my heart. And how he loves when we speak to him and just give him our attention. He enjoys, interestingly enough, he enjoys your presence even more sometimes, I wonder, than we think we enjoy his presence. And how he loves to be alone with us as his heart is lovesick towards us like a groom towards a bride. Verse 15, they say, catch us then the little foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. Now, here this seems at this point, you may have a little note there in your Bible, that the brothers, again, they kind of play a very small act in this poetic drama that we have here, they chime in. We can't be certain, but there is this caution here, notice, to capture the foxes, that notice what the foxes do is they spoil the tender vines of the grapes. They would dig down and they would damage the vines and therefore make the vines become unfruitful. And because of what they did, they caused problematic complications to the budding fruit and the fruitfulness of the vine. Well, this is spoken in a very poetic and picturesque way of the idea of at times we need in relationships as men and women in a romantic relationship, courtship, it happens then. In marriage, it continues to happen that we have to be careful, if you would, of the little foxes that try and creep into a relationship to spoil the fruitfulness of our love relationships. And there are going to be things that try and creep into relationships between a man and a woman in the dating process, in the marriage relationship as well, that threaten, like the fox, that threaten to ruin the fruitfulness of the relationship, to rob it of good things, to steal away that which would make the relationship have life and vitality and fruitfulness. And we have to be able at times to identify those little things that threaten our relationships and to deal with them. And at times to eradicate them or remove them, because if we don't, those little tiny things can completely eat away and destroy an entire relationship. And many a times when a relationship ends up, in a sense, dying on the vine, if you catch my drift, a lot of times what you find, and I found this, again, dealing with couples for you know, over two decades and working with you know, marriages and so forth, 
that you realize it wasn't an overnight thing. It was gradual little concessions and problems and things and, 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 and things that were going on that were damaging in the relationship and, and harming the relationship, but they just kept being dismissed. They kept being ignored, and they kept being kind of, in a sense, not paid attention to, and little by little, nibble by nibble, little by little, things just kept getting more damaged and more defiled and more ruined to where eventually the whole vine just kind of shrivels up and the fruitfulness goes away. And a lot of it could have been avoided had there been a little bit more vigilance by the couple to pay attention to. Sometimes when we find those little things that are threatening and ruining the relationship, you got to recognize them and deal with them. And you, and you got to do what you can to protect the relationship from time to time from those kind of little foxes that come in that can tend to want to spoil and ruin the relationship. Verse 16, he goes on to say, my beloved is mine and I am his. And he feeds his flock among the lilies. Now, again, verse 16, we're going to see that phrase show up numerous times. It just speaks of the real depth of relationship. My beloved is mine, she says, and I am his. We belong to each other. We're unified. We have a deep love bond between us, me and my beloved. He belongs to me. I belong to him. We have a shared relationship. Again, just speaks of the depth of intimacy and bond that was between them. And again, as we look at that, certainly we can hear the heart of what's spiritual between us and Jesus. My beloved is mine and I am his. And to see that reality that Jesus belongs to us and we belong to him. And that we're married together with Christ. And because of that marriage and that beautiful relationship, if you would, to back up considering verse 15 as well, guess what we also have to do in our spiritual relationship? You have to pay attention to those little tiny foxes that want to come in and nibble away and ruin your relationship with the Lord. Because I tell you folks... Sometimes just little tiny things you left unchecked in your life, in your spiritual walk, and you make little compromises and little concessions. I can tell you this, whenever somebody has a major moral failure or a total train wreck spiritually, it's never just an overnight thing that just some major foolish, it's always, you can see the history to it. Always has a history to it. Small, little, gradual concessions over time, letting the little foxes in, letting them do what they were doing, and then the spiritual relationship between that person and the Lord gets very damaged. So again, even as the couple needs to protect, we need to protect that depth of love relationship that we have with Jesus as well. Verse 17, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethir. So it seems now there's this departure after a time of visitation and chapter 3, verse 1, picks up now, and it seems to clearly be making a reference to a dream uh, that was transpiring, that she, the Shulamite gal, was having this dream. And again, that sometimes very well is attached to being in love, daydreaming, regular dreaming. She says, look, verse 3, verse 1, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city in the streets and into the squares, and I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me, and I said, 
have you seen the one I love? Now, seems what's happening here, poetically being described, is perhaps he departs, he goes back again to the palace, she's there out in the countryside still, and like is very common in a relationship, she starts to struggle with some insecurity. Oh, well, he's going to go back to the palace. There's all types of palace beauties in this big city there, and, and maybe she's feeling a little insecure, and she's, because of the detachment, in a sense, circumstantially, she's having a little bit of anxiety because she's lost sense of the connection and his presence being there. So she's kind of struggling here a little bit with some anxiety over a loss of the sense of his presence. And as she's wrestling with that, she begins to have this dream. She's looking for him. She can't find him, and she's getting stressed out because she's kind of losing sense of his presence. And so she goes out in her dream. She's walking around the streets and finds the watchman. Have, have you seen him? Have you seen the one that I love? Verse 4, scarcely had I passed by them when I found, in this dream it seems, the one I love, and I held him. And I would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So she finds him in her dream and she says, listen, I'm not going to take a chance of you getting away from me. You are too special. So she says, I'm bringing you home to mom and dad's house and, and, and we better make this official. I need to bring you home and introduce you to mom and dad. And she says, I brought him home. To my, to my parents' house. And so again, she's describing this kind of happening in her dream. And again, I think somehow in some ways maybe connected to this sense of feeling a little bit insecure. Now, when we look at verses one through four there, again, can you not see a beauty to some degree of the picture of what happens at times spiritually? Sometimes just like the Shulamite was having some anxiety and in a sense lost sense of the presence of Solomon not being with her. Sometimes you and I, we can lose sense of the presence of the Lord in our life spiritually, and then we start to get alarmed. And, and perhaps like the Shulamite woman, we start to, I don't know, I don't sense the Lord's presence like I used to. And that causes us a degree of anxiety, and we start to feel uncomfortable. And, and yet, hopefully, like verse 4, when she went out and she sought the one that she loved, she says, when I found the one I love, I held him and I would not let go. And look, I hope for you and for me, hopefully when we find our one true love in Jesus, that you tightly hold on to him in absolute dedication and say, I am never letting go of the Lord. I have found the love of my life and this is better than any love I found with any person. I have found the one I love in Jesus, and I am going to hold on to Jesus, and I am never going to let go. And you know what? Let, let me encourage you, if you have found your love in Jesus, to, to determine to do that. Don't ever let Jesus go. Don't ever let him go. Hang on to him. He is the greatest love relationship anyone could ever experience. In all honesty, if you're a single person, he's the key to someday having a proper love relationship with an imperfect human being. Because if you're finding perfection and fulfillment and complete satisfaction vertically with the Lord Jesus as the love of your life, then guess what you're able to do? You can then on the horizontal accept a love relationship with an imperfect, broken, sinful fellow human being and you don't have unrealistic expectations towards them. 
because you don't need perfection from them. You don't need them to be your everything. You don't need them to fulfill because your fulfillment and perfection is in Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to be able to find that perfect fulfillment in Christ, to hold on to him and never let him go, because really that's what I think frees us in some ways to then be able to have a proper love relationship and to find a life partner with another human being as God intends for us. Now, verse 5, we come back to this refrain. We see it repeated for the second time. It's another repeated refrain in the Song of Solomon. She then says, talking about this love relationship with Solomon, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So again, she comes back to this counsel that she gave last week. We saw it. She gives it again, again now here. She says, look, yes, this is what's going on in my life, and it's wonderful, but she says, don't force it. Don't awaken this process in your life prematurely. Don't try and stir it up, force it, strive to make it happen in the flesh. She says, use restraint. Don't awaken this prematurely. Don't try and bring this to pass before it's time until the proper and the appropriate time comes to pass. And, you know, I, there's certainly great counsel there for every single person to not strive to try and make something happen. Listen, God is more than able to coordinate in a very supernaturally natural way what he intends and desires. Again, w when you look at the marital paradigm from Genesis chapter 2, God's original design for marriage God custom creates Eve, and it says that God brought her to the man. God brought her to the man. And so again, God is very faithful, and he's not impartial, and he is more than able to do that. And where trouble begins to happen is when people are trying to prematurely awaken and stir up romantic love in a premature time in their life. Many times that's how people get off track or they prematurely awaken sexual activity outside of marriage before it's the appropriate time, and then nothing but pain and problems and regrets come as a result of that. So here, the Word of God in the midst of this book about love and romantic relationship between a man and a woman gives repeated counsel to use restraint, to be patient, to wait for God's right time. Now, verse 6 seems to be now the wedding process. We've looked at the courtship, and you'll see as we finish out the end of the chapter, it says right at the end of the chapter, on the day of his wedding. So this seems to describe now the, the wedding process. The two are now about to be wed. She took them to mom and dad's house. Arrangements have been made. He's gone away, and look, verse 6 says, who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? with all the merchant's fragrant powders. Behold, who is it? It's Solomon's couch, with 60 valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. And they all hold their swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. So here comes Solomon now with this huge entourage, 60 armed soldiers, experts in war. So these are, are top trained, you know, if you would, kind of special forces type of men as a bodyguard coming with Solomon now, carrying him on this couch in this, you know, entourage coming from the palace, coming out to uh, her homeland to pick her up as the bride. 
of the wood of Lebanon, verse 9, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. Now, that term palanquin is a reference to, if we could describe it this way, sort of like a, uh, a mobile couch. If you've ever seen you know, movies or where you have ancient kings and there's kind of like this really plush throne or couch on kind of a platform and sometimes it even has a canopy over it and you got all these you know, grunt guys underneath carrying the king. And this is kind of the idea here, kind of like a mobile couch or you know, plush throne. He's being carried in on this. But understand, the reason he's coming with this is, is not just to come in style himself, but his intention is to pick up his bride and this is his limo. This is his high-class ancient BMW. He's, he's coming to pick up his bride with a fancy entourage and to be able to pick her up to bring her back for the wedding celebration. He made its pillars of silver. He decks it out. So he made his upgrades on his palanquin. Its support of gold. Its seat was of purple. Its interior paved with love. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> was paved with love on the inside. By the daughters of Jerusalem, go forth, O daughters of Zion. See King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day, notice, on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. What a beautiful description of the day of a groom's wedding, the day of any couple's wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. It was the best day of his life, man. You know, I've had the privilege to do marriages for the last two decades now. And of course, you know, everybody looks at the bride, and we rightly should. I mean, she is the star of the show. Everything revolves around the bride. But I've learned over the years that there's something really enjoyable to be able to look at the groom, especially if things have been done in a right way, in a healthy way, because he has put in time, sacrifice, effort faced fears, done all kinds of things to do everything he could to lead up to that day to finally get himself the bride. And on that moment, the day of the gladness of his heart, when she's coming down the aisle and you just look and everything within him is just rising to the surface in that moment, and it is just like emotional overload. And to watch a, green, a, a groom just beam with gladness or the tears begin to flow because they are thinking, this is the best day of my life. Finally, I'm getting my bride. I've been waiting for this. And you know, again, as we look at all of this and Solomon in great style with entourage coming with all of his men, his soldiers to pick her up and decking everything out, making it beautiful. Again, you look at all that and it all shows of the heart and the love of Solomon that he wanted his bride to be protected. Why do you think he sent 60 men who were armed, skilled experts in war? Because it wasn't always safe traveling. He didn't just send three men. He wanted, that's my bride. So he sent a 60-man escort along with him because he wanted her to feel as secure as possible. Again, notice good tip there, guys. He wanted her to feel incredibly secure. And a man who's wise should do that. He wanted her to feel extremely safe. Part of his love for her was that she would feel very safe, very secure, he was very protective over her. He wanted to shield her and shelter her. And more than that, this dude is spoiling her. I mean, you want to talk about posh? He brings the most upgraded palanquin couch, and he's planning on carrying her for where she is in the countryside in Lebanon all the way back to the city of Jerusalem, to the palace, riding in style. 
and bringing her back with this beautiful entourage, and his heart is thrilled with love and excitement as he kind of gives this beautiful atmosphere to just spoil and bless her like a, a princess, giving her that wonderful princess treatment, and he is filled with gladness in his heart over finally getting his bride. And again, we look at all of that, and it's a very beautiful reminder of exactly really what the Lord Jesus is going to do when he comes back and returns for us, right? John 14 tells us that Jesus, as our groom says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to, to, to get you and to bring you to where I am, that there I am, you may be also. And again, this is typical of a Jewish wedding. The groom would go away, make preparations, and then when the time was right, he would go back like this, maybe not in that style, but he would then go pick up the bride and bring the bride back for the week-long feast of celebration. They would consummate the marriage physically, and for a week they would celebrate uh, together with the family and sort of this whole you know, honeymoon romantic type experience where they could finally be together and actually enjoy sexual expression and, and, and consummate the marriage to be husband and wife. And the joy in all of that, and, and of course it speaks to us of exactly what Jesus has intended for us, that he intends to come back and to get us, we await the coming of our spiritual groom. And I believe like this man, it, we think we're going to be glad. You know, read John 17. Jesus says, Father, I want those who I'm coming back to be with me where I am. You know, we think we're going to be so glad when Jesus comes to get us and bring us home to heaven. When the reality is, as the groom on the day of that wedding supper of the lamb, on that day, it's going to be the day of the gladness of Jesus' heart as well. Because he's finally getting his bride, who he sacrificed and did so much for to bring us into relationship with him. Now, verse 1 of chapter 4, we begin to now get into the physical honeymoon, if you would, the, the wedding night between Solomon and the Shulamite. He says, behold, you are fair, beautiful. The idea is my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And take notice, guys, what's he doing? He begins his whole intimacy and lovemaking process with words. He doesn't instantly just jump right into fifth gear. He understands the value of romance, of a slow approach, of gradually warming things up. He's using wisdom here. He's demonstrating a degree of sensitivity and the value of romance. Again, women typically warm up a little bit slower. And so he says, you are beautiful, my love, beautiful, he says. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Again, remember the dove is a symbol of peace and harmony, but also a symbol of a, a bird that is devoted to life to its mate. And so again, he's speaking of her fidelity and her commitment to him, that she's a very loyal person. He's honoring her, speaking of her beautiful eyes. He says, verse 1 going on, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, again, you may want to pick some of your own analogies and compliments. I don't recommend strictly taking the Bible literal there. That might not fly too well. But the, the, the flock of goats going on Mount Gilead, they, they were dark-haired goats, and they would be beautifully seen on the mountainside if you looked across. And so what he's describing there of her hair, he's saying your hair, it's dark, it's wavy, you have beautiful, wavy, dark hair. He's saying he's complimenting her hair. He then moves down, he's go, going down in the whole process. Here, look, verse two, and your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing. They're clean, that's good. 
And he says, and none is barren among them. In other words, he says, everyone has twins, none is barren. He's saying, and there's none missing. Praise the Lord. And again, understand that culture, dental hygiene and uh, orthodontists weren't something of the day. So he's celebrating your teeth. They're white. They look clean. And you've still got every one of them. There's not a one missing. There's not one barren spot in all of your teeth. What a beautiful thing. That's <laughs> just beautiful. I just finally, the veil's lifted and she's got all her teeth. Praise the Lord, he says. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Again, the idea is fruitful. The, the pomegranate would be pink. So he's describing again the the, the beauty of her facial features. Verse four, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers and shields of mighty men. So again, there he seems to kind of be describing as he now goes from the, the face, he's moving down, you know, going downward. He's describing, complimenting now her neck. It seems to be he's describing the, the beauty of her neck, perhaps the, the beautiful posture the shields and the bucklers hanging around. Maybe he's describing you know, beautiful ornamental necklace that she has on. But again, he's just, he's just complimenting her here from head to dough. And he's clearly going, pay attention, from the north to the south here. And slowly and little by little, he's verbally complimenting her, making her feel secure, making her feel beautiful, complimenting her, letting him know how beautiful that he sees her. Verse 5, he goes on to then say, you could tell he's going south, and your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, fawns, remember, are basically young deers, and young deers tend to be known for being youthful and bouncing about, and they're soft, and most people want to pet little nice deers. So, there's very sensual language here. You can't ignore what he's describing. And he's describing now her breasts in a very sensual way and his desire to be able to fondle her breasts and to be able to enjoy the, the beauty of every part of her body and the fact that she's now become his wife and they're about to engage in an intimate way. He then goes on to say, verse 6, and until the day breaks, in other words, we can sleep at another time, he's saying, this is the honeymoon, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, you remember back in the prior chapter, it says that a woman would wear myrrh. Remember, we saw it, she wore it as a necklace between her two breasts. So what he's saying there is, I am going to go visit the mountains. Very sensual. Again, he's speaking in romantic ways. He says, verse 7, in his final verbal words of complimenting her, you are beautiful, fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. In other words, he's saying, you're perfect. Your body is absolutely perfect. Every part of you from head to toe, I don't see a single flaw in you. What lady would not be goo-goo after you tell her that? To compliment, again, why is this wise? Because typically, most women, to some degree, gentlemen, struggle with aspects of insecurity and concern of their bodily features. And so a wise man understands, I want to remove every insecurity from within you. I want you to feel very comfortable. I want you to feel very secure. 
I want you to know that I admire and I love everything about you. And baby, I don't see a flaw in you. I love everything about you. And as he speaks to her in this way, it becomes something, again, that just further prepares her in this whole realm of romance. Now, again, as we look at verses 1 through 7, verse 7, very beautifully, I think, reminds us of exactly our life having been united with Christ. The same can be said of Jesus regarding us as his bride, that Jesus can say to us once we've experienced union together with Jesus, maritally, there is no longer any spot in you. How wonderful is that? That when we become married to Jesus and we enter into union with him, that all the spots of stain and sin and guilt have been removed from our life. And that when Jesus looks upon us, he doesn't see our stains and the spots and the guilt in our life anymore. He sees us pure and washed and cleansed by his blood. Verse 8, he says, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards. Now, again, keep in mind, he's brought her back to Jerusalem. What's he mean, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse? Well, again, where did he just pick her up and bring her from? Lebanon. So what's Lebanon? Her hometown, her family. So what is Solomon understanding what's going on? You're here with me. We're about to be intimate. We're becoming romantic. This is becoming sensual, but I can tell your mind's distracted. Your mind's back in Lebanon. And he's saying, come back with me. Come back from Lebanon. What he's doing here is very lovingly, very sensitively realizing that her thoughts are struggling. She's distracted in the midst of the intimate moment. He's full throttle. He's full engaged. He's scanning head to toe, dropping compliments left to right, and he senses her mind's distracted. And so what's he doing when he says, come with me back from Lebanon, my love? What he's doing, he's trying to help her with the distracted mind that she's struggling with in the midst of the moment of intimacy. And can I just say to you, gentlemen, it's a very wise man who understands that men are very laser-focused and one-track minds women's minds can tend to spider web and be on 27 different things at one time. And if there is something that her mind can be distracted about in the midst of intimacy, it may be going on. It may be, oh, the dishes aren't washed. Oh, oh I forgot to change the, put the clothes from the washer to the dryer. And, and, and a woman's mind, though she can be engaged in the act physically, can be running in all different directions. And it's a very wise man who understands our sensuality and our romance will be much more fulfilling and much more enjoyable if we're both fully focused mentally and in the moment as much as just physically going through the act. Does that make sense? And so he's very wisely here in love as a wise love maker as well, trying to help her mind be in the moment to be in a sense, enjoying the, the experience. He says to her, verse 9, you have ravished my heart. The idea is you've awakened or aroused. He says, my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. He says, one glance. That's all it takes, he says. One glance, one look of your eyes. Again, the, the power of the human eye. You know, the eyes often the window to the soul. And he says, man, when I look into your eyes with one look, he says, or just one link of your necklace, I'm done, he says. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips 
oh, my spouse, they drip as honeycomb. He's describing the sweetness, the enjoyability of being able to kiss her. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He goes down further, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my spouse, a garden shut up, a fountain sealed. And then he begins to describe the aspects of a garden. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrhs and aloes and the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. So as he is going from north to south, he now begins to describe, verse 12, a garden enclosed, a spring shut up. A, a garden is a fertile area. There is only one area on a woman's body that's a fertile area. So he is completely now south, and notice what he is doing in the midst of this moment is he's actually, beyond being romantic, he's actually praising her in gratitude that she is giving to him a gift of her garden, which has been preserved and kept for him alone. He's, he's praising her for her virginity here. Do you see what he's saying? A garden that up to this point, it's been enclosed and no one else has had access to that garden. He says a spring that has been shut up. No one else has had access to that spring. A fountain that has been kept sealed, enclosed, sealed, shut up. No one else has had access to such. And in a sense, in that moment, he is saying, thank you so much for preserving this gift for me. And he's praising her in gratitude. And look, folks, I can tell you this. There is no more beautiful gift that any person or any two people can give to one another than to keep themselves preserved and kept and not allow access of any other person to their sexual life until the day they give that access to their spouse, to give that as a gift. And it's such a beautiful thing, God's heart and God's design, and he's so thankful that this is the case. And as he's describing verses 13 to 15, these fruits and spices and the beautiful fragrance and senses of a garden, again, understand, uh, private gardens in that day, which is typically what they were, that would have walls built around them, they typically weren't for just planting rows of tomatoes, Typically, gardens, private gardens as being described there, were gardens that were intended really for just enjoyment alone. They were meant to be pleasant places that you visited to have a pleasant experience. So what's he describing regarding the sexual expression of now finally being able to visit her garden? He's saying, this is so pleasant, it's so enjoyable, which is, again, a reminder that God's heart and intention for sexual expression between a husband and a wife is not just robotic procreation of more children. God intends it to be a pleasant, enjoyable experience, just like the visitation of a private garden, that it's intended to be pleasurable and enjoyable. That's the way God designed it to be. And we're completely missing something if we're thinking somehow that's not to be the case. God intends it to be that way. You can tell the sensuality and the passion between them. Look at verse 16. She then speaks, and look what she says. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. 
and blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. The idea is that the fragrance of it may go out. And then look what she says. She now speaks forth the invitation to her husband. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. She's now the one initiating. She's the one that speaks and says, I've kept this garden for you, and I want you to visit my garden now. I, I, I desire you. I want you. And she says very beautifully, let my beloved come to his garden. How beautiful. I preserved this, and I kept this for you, and I give this to you as a gift, to you exclusively alone. Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with spice and eaten my honeycomb with my honey, and I have drunk my wine with milk. So again, there he's just describing how he was partaking of what was his with his wife, the enjoyment of sexual intercourse together, and he says, I have come to my garden, and he says, and, and basically his language is saying, and I have been fully satisfied. I have found everything. I had desire nothing else. You completely satisfy me. And again, a very wise man to understand the gift and the value to find full satisfaction and gratification and fulfillment with one woman in a lifelong commitment in a marriage covenant and to find full gratification there. And he says, I'm completely satisfied. I've gathered all that I need. I'm fulfilled, he's saying in a very gracious way. Now, Question arises, the second half of verse 1 there, who's the one speaking? Because then this uh, sort of chorus comes forth, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Now that's stated in regards to the fact that they have just consummated the marriage and sexual intercourse and had great fulfillment and pleasure in doing such. And now a voice comes and says, eat and drink, drink deeply, the idea is there, is find full enjoyment in the process of sexual expression. Now, because we don't know who's saying that, some commentators think that that's actually an interjection of the voice of the Lord himself who created all such things, saying, partake, you're married. Again, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the marriage bed is undefiled that adulterers God will judge and fornicators God. But, but the marriage bed is undefiled. It's a gift and that God is saying, this is something I created and you should fulfill yourself completely with your spouse. And God's endorsing something that he gave as a gift. Verse two says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. So again, here it seems maybe that there is a little bit of a dream type thing going on in the midst of this. And important to recognize, when we come to chapter 5, verse 2, we now have, if you would, kind of, if you would, somewhat of a, if you could, the honeymoon's over at this point, uh, perhaps would be the best way to say it. You've just had this incredible description of the passion between these two, and now they've come back from the honeymoon and real life is set in. And now as they come back from the honeymoon, real life has set in, and you're going to see some of the realities of some of the struggles of the married life and some of what real life looks like that it's not always fireworks and there's learning and growing and processes and bumps in the road and living out mature marital relationship within a reality. But you're going to have to come back next week to hear that. Now, 
That being said, let me say this. What a fitting description that is as well of the spiritual life, right? Because when we first come to Jesus, let's be honest, it's like a spiritual honeymoon, isn't it? And the intensity and the passion and the excitement and the thrill of discovering your sins are forgiven and falling in love with Jesus and meeting the Lord. I mean, it's just, it's so thrilling and so exciting. But then what kind of does tend to happen just like in all love relationships then we kind of settle in, and I'm not saying we should lose passion, but then we kind of settle into learning how to grow a little bit in realizing that maturity in Christian love and the Christian walk is there may not be fireworks 24-7 going off between us and the Lord, but it doesn't mean the love's any different. It doesn't mean the relationship's any less important. It's just that that love is maturing and having a greater understanding of commitment, and you start realizing that sometimes... There are challenges in the spiritual life. And sometimes, even though you love Jesus, like we're going to see with this Shulamite woman as the new wife, she fails and some tension happens between her and Solomon and they got to work it out and there's a need of forgiveness. And sometimes, even though you love Jesus, and then all of a sudden you realize though you love him, you fail the Lord or you resist the Lord or you make mistakes as a Christian. And that doesn't mean the marriage is over. It just means you got to work it out together between you and Jesus and accept his love and keep walking forward in that mature Christian experience. Well, let's stand together and let's pray.